Hey, uh, y'all, there is a, a great line from uh, an, an English pastor by the name of David Watson, who back in the 1960s remembered seeing on a college campus someone who held up this sign. And this is his quote. The sign said, Jesus, yes. Church, no. And Watson says, so read the placard carried by this student. In this spiritually hungry age, the interest in the person of Jesus is unmistakable. But at the same time, the popular image of the church is that of empty and decaying buildings, aged and female congregations, and depressed and irrelevant clergy. <laughs> Thus, the growing enthusiasm for Jesus seems tragically offset by the almost total disenchantment with the church. Now, I wonder how that settles with you. Uh, if you are actually even fairly near at all, the modern view of institutions, at least among your generation, um, I'll bet you that comes close to your impression as well. Jesus, I'm cool with. Spirituality, I'm great with. I can't stand that thing that I grew up in that we call church. That's the problem. Look, y'all, this semester we are looking at the book of Ephesians to try to discern uh, the information that Paul talks about with this God with a goal who's trying to give us a sense of our spiritual bearings. He's helping you make sense about what reality looks like, at least from the eyes of God. And what we're going to find out tonight is is that when God is working out his plan, this mystery that Paul's talking about, he is not just trying to bring about the salvation of a bunch of isolated individuals. That's not what he's only about. His intention is to take those individuals and to form them into a body, a family, a group, or as it says, a new humanity, making one new man out of all of these individual people that will embody his attributes in a way in which us as individuals just can't. In short, what Paul says is, is that God's very intention for humanity is the church. <laughs> that's what he's saying. At least that's what I'm going to pitch at you tonight and see if you can agree with me. Hey, look, I want to be clear here, and for the sake of getting your, your emotions stirring, I want to be a little bit over the top as well. Um, for every other epoch in church history, for the last 2,000 years with Jesus, Christians believed that you could not call yourself a Christian and not be a member of a body of believers known as a church. Now, now, before you freak out, um, I did not just say that you could not be a Christian unless you were a member of a church. That's not what I said. What I'm trying to get across to you is, is from the very beginning People saw the collection of the body in very tangible forms coming together as a major part of what God was wanting to do. So much so that it would lead uh, people like early church father Cyprian, which I'm sure all of you are familiar, to say, to say this. He would say, you cannot have, listen, listen, you cannot have God for your father if you don't have the church for your mother. In other words, to relate to God is to relate to his people. You can't have one without the other. 
Look, y'all, I'm simply trying to say this. When Paul is presenting his grand unified theory for the universe, he is assuming that part of that is your involvement in a body, in a church. And I'm going to go so far as to say a local church, even while we are in college. Look, y'all, 81% of Americans in the last time it was polled answered yes to this question. Do you believe that you can be a good Christian or a good Jew without regularly attending church or synagogue? (laughs) 81% said, sure. What does that have to do with it? And so clearly, I want to pitch to you something that is against the grain of your instincts. And it's simply to say this. The more alone you are in your Christianity the less intimate you will be with God. That's it. So what I want to do is I'm going to take this last half of chapter 2 and run it through a prism of three things. I want to look at, first of all, the precursor to the church, second of all, the heartbeat of the church, and then finally, the centrality of the church. Okay? You got those points there in your handout. Follow along as we dive into this. Okay, the precursor. In other words, Paul opens up by saying... What you were prior to this very radical idea that Jesus is coming about and bringing uh, in the church. And what he uses is he uses some words to describe you outside of that involvement. Uh, The first thing that he says is that before Jesus comes along, you were nothing more than a statistic. That's all you were. Uh, The Jews used to call Ephesian Christians the uncircumcised. Now, look, it doesn't come through in the translation right there, but that word was a term of derision. It had, it had just as much emotional force as the N-word has in our day or any other sort of racial derogatory slang. It, it, you're the uncircumcised. It meant that you were on the outside. You were separated, which is the second thing that he says. He says, secondly, you, are, you were separated. In other words, you were singled out from the rest. You were peculiar in that sense. But third, he looks and says, and you were alienated. Alienated from the commonwealth of God. Now look, what Paul is probably talking about is a little feature of the ancient Jewish temple that you may not be readily aware of. In the ancient temple, there were various courts that used to surround the temple proper. Inside the building of the temple, there was a, you know, all kinds of religious artifacts inside there. And on the outside of the temple, there was a courtyard. But there was yet further still another courtyard beyond that. And even beyond that, there was yet another. So there were these sort of almost concentric uh, layers of levels to get through. And there were giant, literal, thick walls that separated you from one area. Well, guess what the, the outermost court was referred to? That was the court of the Gentiles. That's for those people. Those are the ones who use that water fountain, right? In other words, there was an actual physical wall that separated you from, believe it or not, God himself (laughs) in the temple. Now look, okay, you don't have to be like a sociological psychologist to wonder about what that would do psychologically to a people who literally had to live with that literal wall. What would that do to their psyches? Well, look, I want to pitch to you two thoughts that it ought to make us think about when we hear what we were prior to coming to Christ. First of all, you need to understand something, that if you call yourself a Christian tonight, and you may not, and that's okay, you're in the right place. I hope this is a place, like uh, Blake said, it's it's, it's, um, it's, it's welcome, it's um, unthreatening for you. 
But look, y'all, if you claim to be a Christian, you need to realize how it is that non-Christians on this campus, those who have nothing to do with your religion, what it is that they think, follow me, you think about them. Hear what I'm commenting on? What is it that a non-Christian thinks that Christians think about them? Can I tell you on behalf of the ones that I've spoken to? They think that you hate them. In other words, there is a sense, and who knows what causes it. Maybe it's psychology, maybe it's something spiritual going on in them. But there's an instinct to wonder whether or not there is um, real acceptance there. Or, Or if there's not just outright hatred and condescension to them. Right? Um... Look, y'all, I realize this, that though we may not have a physical temple with walls around them, do you got, you've got to understand that these walls come up all the time. Look, y'all, we got all kinds of walls. Look, I think, this is worth, I think this is worth you asking for the sake of discussion. And even if I get in trouble with this, I'm going to ask it. Can a person of a different race in your sorority or fraternity get a fair hearing in your organization? How about this one? Can a person build a $100,000 house in your neighborhood full of $300,000 houses? Hmm. Um, Do you and your Christian friends use a lot of silly Christianized lingo that honestly has no other real purpose than making others who don't have any idea what you're talking about know that they're not part of your group. You know what I'm talking about? Look, y'all, we may not have any physical sort of uh, structures of stone, but we got all kinds of walls. Look, do not read these passages and make the mistake that many people do by completely spiritualizing the text and say, oh, well, Paul is clearly talking about emotional, psychological, spiritual walls. Oh, come on now. That's not what we're saying. Remember, we're looking at this text as if Paul has something to say about my world and the way in which I see it. And you know what I'm suggesting? We erect physical boundaries with those upon whom we have projected spiritual realities. Hence, your life at Ole Miss. That's the first question. Second question we have to consider when we consider this whole issue of being alienated from the commonwealth is this. The Bible assumes that if you are outside of Christ tonight, you are a fundamentally lonely person. Now look, I'm not saying that you you wish that you were married or maybe you wish that you had more friends. I'm saying that the Bible is laying down a gauntlet to you saying that there is a base note in your heart of utter and complete loneliness. And I want to be the first one to uncork it for you. That maybe that's what's going on. You're just out there. And the truth is, the friendships that we try to maintain on the outside of that, they never seem to do the trick. They're constantly letting you down. You know, the the, the ever-famous Facebook quote, you know? We live for the nights we won't remember with the friends we'll never forget. (laughs) Right? Okay. Fine, live for those nights, but be prepared to live for something that you'll never know, and that's real friendship and real connection. That's what Paul's talking about. And he's looking and saying, once you were outside, you were alienated. Own it. That's the first point, okay? That's the, um, that's the idea of the precursor of the church, what you were before. 
Secondly, though, I want you to see, though, the heartbeat of the church. Because when you look at verse 13, Paul says that this is no longer the case. Something dramatic has happened to deal with this pervasive spiritual and physical social walls that we built up around ourselves. Look up there in verse 16 because Paul says that there was something about what Jesus of Nazareth did when he went to the cross that, and look what he says, he killed the hostility. Look, you only build walls around people among whom you have general hostility. That's why you build fences around yourself and other people is because there's hostility. And yet Paul says that there was something done on the cross of Jesus. When Jesus of Nazareth goes through that historical event of hanging on the cross and and dying and rising again from the dead, that destroyed the hostility. Now, I look at that when I first read it and say, well, how can that be? (laughs) Because it sure looks like the only person that was killed on the cross was Jesus. How is hostility killed? Oh, that's a great question. And in many ways, it gets to the very heartbeat of what members of the church most fundamentally share with each other. Look, y'all, on the cross, what Paul is saying is, now brace yourself for this, is that on the cross, Jesus became the hostility that we had for each other. Did you catch that? In other words, he doesn't say that Jesus became hostile, like he got mad or angry or something while he was on the cross. No, no, no. What he did was is he became hostility itself. The best example of this is from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, where it says, God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin to, listen, be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now notice, it didn't say that God made Jesus to become sinful. As a matter of fact, the New Testament kind of goes out of its way to say that Jesus had no sin. But what it says is it made him sin. What does that mean? Look, y'all, this is as best as I know how to express this. Because that on the cross, God treated Jesus. God treated Jesus as if. It's my favorite phrase to describe this whole experience. God treated Jesus as if. As if, legally speaking, he had done all of the things to the world that you and I have been doing to each other for centuries. Did you catch that? God treated Jesus as if he had done all of the racism, all of the oppression, all of the war, all of the family violence, all of the condescension, all of the exclusion, in a word, the hostility. He laid it on his son. And he punished him as if he had been the one to do it all. He looked at him and said, you are going to bear the wall building that the humanity that I created has been building up around themselves ever since the first time they rebelled against me. And he killed him for it. But when he did so, in judging his son, he did that so that he would not therefore have to come and judge us. Your face is supposed to light up at that moment, right? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? Those who are looking and saying, yes, he bore my hostility for every other person. Whether it's racial, whether it's familial, whether it's a parent, whether it's a professor, 
whether it's a fraternity brother or a sorority sister, or God forbid, someone sitting on the pew next to you now. He bore that hostility. And for that reason, I can't, I can't harbor it. I can't hold on to it. He bore it. He paid for it. And so therefore, I've got to let it go. In verse 14, it says that he's not just, therefore, the source of our peace. That's not what he says. But he says, Jesus is our peace. He is our peace. He became our peace. And the closer I'm connected to him, the closer I'm connected to real peace with each other. And that's my only application from this point. Look, y'all, when you begin to get the heartbeat of the church... What you're going to realize is the primary result of Jesus' activity in your life will be the bringing down of walls in your life. you got to hear me on this one, y'all. You'll know that Jesus has come to get you, (laughs) right? You'll know that you have a relationship with him when all of a sudden you begin to find yourself being friends with people that you otherwise would never have anything in common with. Did you catch that? You will find yourself with an ability to look at someone in a way in which you never could have before. And I would even go so far as to say, if that's not happening in your life, then you've not embraced this cross. You have some form of southern religiosity that makes you comfortable in a place where everybody looks and kind of acts like you. But it's not this cross. Because Jesus is looking and saying, you'll know when I've landed in your life, when all of a sudden you begin to look and say, I... I, I have to love that person because every other difference between us has been neutralized by his work. Look, y'all, the heartbeat of the cross is about bringing these things down. Unity among friends, among churches, among families, among nations. This is not a wishful Christian ideal. (laughs) It's what the cross was about. It's the primary thing that the cross accomplished, according to Paul. When it's not there, the cross is not there. Look, y'all, Jesus is going to unite you to people that formerly you would never have anything to do with. Or people that under normal circumstances would drive you crazy. Who may even right now, you have a place in your heart of absolute animosity towards them. You got that? Do you have something like that? Don't you have one of those people that you're thinking to yourself, he's not talking about that person. He is! (laughs) That's who I'm talking about. The heartbeat of the church brings those walls down. That brings me to the third and final point, which is the centrality of the church. Look, y'all, Paul goes on in the rest of that chapter, and I'll be honest with you, it is loaded. It is loaded with information. But I want to make three points and then three subpoints under the third point. Uh-huh. You're going, great. Six points. Can I go to the baseball game? Bear with me. Very quickly, Paul looks and says, do you want to know what your life looks like with Jesus in the center? Let me tell you, number one, it's going to look like this. He says, first of all, you are now fellow citizens with those other people. Look, y'all, when you join a church, you can no longer say, I'm an American. Oh, hi, I'm a Southerner. Oh, hi, uh, my name is Les Newsom. Or I'm primarily Caucasian, right? I think all those things are true. Um, Look, y'all, you have to say that fundamentally what you are at the most basic level is a Christian. Sinclair Ferguson, for whom I am borrowing much of this material, Sinclair Ferguson says that becoming a Christian, listen to this, disenfranchises you from every other potentially defining event in your life. You do realize this, don't you? The events of your life have been building to kind of create who you are. 
I know this, gentlemen, because I hear you talk about the big game in high school. <laughs> Don't you remember that night, guys? You still remember that night? Remember the night when you hit the bucket at the, at the buzzer and you thought to yourself that you were the king of the world? It's a defining event. That's why you've been reliving it with your friends. When you sit around, it's really all you can talk about. Others of you, in a more darker way, look at that event in your past of that abuse from that family member as being the most defining event in my life. That when I went through that horrific affair with that individual, it was awful. It may have been your parents' divorce. Maybe it was a failure of your own. Maybe it was a public humiliation that you went through. Maybe it was some kind of like relational shame that somebody put you through. Look, the cross of Jesus comes along to disenfranchise you from any other event that would threaten to define your identity. It says that's not who you are. This is who you are. Jesus says who you are. He defines your identity fundamentally and totally. And because that's the truth, we don't look at ourselves in the way in which we did. Paul is saying that when you become a Christian, that becomes the only real socially defining attribute that you have. It's that major. Okay? Fellow citizens. Secondly, he looks and says that we are members of the household of God. I wish we had time to talk about this, but I don't. What, what Paul is saying is, is we have a family. We've been adopted. So that no matter what I think of my earthly family and my failures of my earthly family, and some of you have built up boatloads of anger towards your fathers, your mothers are the person that drive you the most crazy in your life. You are carrying around a U-Haul of baggage about them. And Jesus comes to look and say, I'm going to disenfranchise you from that as well. Because you want to know who you really are? You're a member of my household. You're a member of my family. That's who you are. That's, what divine, that's where you get your spiritual bearings in life. The third image he used is so packed that I decided to give it three subpoints. So there. The third thing he says that you're like is you're not just sort of fellow citizens. You're not just members of a household. But thirdly, he says, you are a temple. You're a temple that's being built together. And look, y'all, this is such a dense metaphor. I almost don't know where to start. But let me start with just a couple thoughts. First of all, historically speaking, Paul is connecting, okay, this new humanity that God has created in Christ to this Old Testament um, structure, edifice, called the temple. And he's saying that these two things are intimately connected. In other words, Paul is suggesting that now that Jesus has come, follow me, this is very important, the church has become what the nation of Israel used to be. Now look, you may think that that's a dry, dusty piece of theology. It is not. The nation of Israel is the church in seedling form. I, I heard one author put it this way, and this is really well stated. The church was not born on the day of Pentecost. Rather, the church was bar mitzvahed on the day of Pentecost. A bar mitzvah is when someone comes of age. That's what happened. In other words, what we tend to do when we first start reading the Bible is we look at the Old Testament. That's the Old Testament. It's got that Old Testament God. And it's got these weird Jewish people, you know, that do all these rituals. And blah, blah. But thank goodness we're New Testament Christians, you know, with Jesus and the church. That's the good stuff, right? Who needs that Old Testament except for morality tales or something like that? No, 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 no. Paul is looking and saying, listen, the nation of Israel was simply, to use one theologian's uh, uh, phrase, a sort of flickering candle to what is a bright burning beacon in the New Testament. Did you catch that? 
In other words, God was slowly revealing himself across human history, but most vividly did it when he got to the church. That's the most vivid way. Look, y'all, this is really important because there's a lot of people in our day who would like to grant a special covenantal significance to, um, to ethnically Jewish people in Jesus' terminology. Um, I'm challenging that. Yes, there, I said it. Now I'm getting in political trouble here as well. I would suggest that there's no reason for a blind support of the nation of Israel because they are the special people of God. Paul is saying the people of God are those who have been born anew in Christ. <laughs> and there is no separation of two people of God. Well, there's the Christians over here, and then there's these special Jewish people that we're not really sure what's going to happen, but one day maybe God will help us figure it all out. Look, y'all, everyone without distinction is invited to Christ. Whether you're Jewish, whether you're Muslim, whether you're Hindu, all are invited to Christ. He is the one who brings down dividing walls, and yet Christians seem intent on creating more and more walls as we do so. The temple metaphor suggests that, first of all. Secondly, though, it says the temple suggests that the church is organized. Now, follow me here. Because what Paul says is, is that this, is, this new uh, creature in Christ has been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. In other words, this building that God is creating and forming is uh, occupied by people who will actually have authority in it. And there are going to be those who are responsible to submit to that authority. In other words, the church is tangible. <laughs> this is going totally against your... Okay, this is where you get mad at me. The church is tangible. There's a lot of us that would like to say, you know, Les, I'm down with the church. I love the church. You know, I kind of have my own special church with God uh, on Sunday mornings, like when I take a walk by myself, or sometimes I just have church right there in my bed underneath my covers where it's warm and comfy, and <laughs> I doze off every now and then, but that's where I have my church. You see, Les, because I'm, in, I'm, I'm a part of the invisible church, you know, just all the Christians who are out there. <laughs> no, 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 no. Paul looks and goes, no, no, this has an organization, and if you have that definition of the church, you have just made irrelevant wild-eyed chunks of the New Testament that look at you and say, submit to those in authority over you. And to a handful of people, they will say, be elders and shepherd the flock. Well, let me ask you a question. How can you submit to an elder if you're, if you're not a part of that body? How will you know who you're supposed to submit to when it says in Hebrews chapter 10, to obey those who are in authority over you? How can you do that? Look, y'all, I'm telling you, the New Testament does not make sense. And this is where some of you are going to have a cow. It does not make sense if you don't have a tangible, visible membership into a local church body. I'm talking the whole nine yards, standing up front, front of the whole church, and answering the questions and letting people, uh, you know, shake your hand. <laughs> In my church, we talk about giving you the right hand of fellowship. Why can't we just say shake hands? I don't know. Give them the right hand of fellowship. <laughs> shake hands. Okay. Look, y'all, I'm simply trying to get you to think that the church is a tangible thing. It's not misty and foggy. Thirdly and finally, and I'll finish with this, the temple metaphor means that our connection in Christ is making us to be joined together, to be built together. Look, y'all, without a doubt, the best thing that's ever happened to me in my life, next to uh, uh, learning about Jesus, <laughs> he said, qualifying his statement, uh, is getting married to my wife. She's right here, Ginger. Um, because when I was single, uh, I could tell that all the decisions uh, that I uh, needed to make were, were just my own. I could do as I pleased. But the funny thing was, is when I got married, uh, I couldn't do whatever I wanted to with my money. Because it was our money. 
I couldn't just go out when I wanted to. I had to check with Ginger, right? And what's funny is, especially if you uh, check with my uh, family and my friends, they will all say, Les, you're a much better person since Ginger came along. <laughs> um, and let me assure you, I, I, I usually feel like anybody that I meet who knew me before the age of 26 when I met Ginger, I, I, I owe them an apology, just sort of right out for whatever it was that I probably did. Look, I'm trying to tell you something. Accountability has been a blessing to me. It is good for me to have somebody who expects me to be someplace at a certain time. Hebrews 3.13 says, Encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Ooh, did you catch that? The writer of Hebrews thinks that you've got a sin problem that if you don't stay connected with other people, it's going to swallow you up and waylay you one time when you least expect it. Look, y'all, I want you to grasp this. Are you involved in a kind of community that has that kind of access to you? In a kind of community that can actually ask you the hard questions that may be able to cross your will and make you think twice about what you're doing? Because the great news of Paul's message here in Ephesians is this. And I'll be honest with you, I think it's the highest form of religious expression This baffles me every time I think of it. God has condescended enough to say, I am going to manifest my presence most tangibly among these people in and through the person that is sitting right next to you in the seat where you are tonight. That's where you're going to find me. We're all looking for God. And yet we're looking for him where he never said he would be found. You know where he said he'd be found? In the church with that single mother down the pew who's trying to raise kids all by herself, with that elderly woman who thinks about death every single day, with that young teenage kid who is so angry and confused with where he is, he rails against anyone and anybody. Hey, I want to invite you. This is, this is another invitation, as I want to say. Come get involved in the church because that's where the action is, y'all. <laughs> And I know what you're saying. You're like, yeah, you haven't been to my church. <laughs> I tell you, there ain't no action in my church. Promise. And that's, as, and that's something to be talked about. How do I decide on what a good church is? That's worth talking about. But I'm going to say this. I want you to go expecting that God is going to show you something there of himself that you would never be able to find out on your own. I dare you. <laughs> I dare you to be a part of God's cosmic plan of healing in the church. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, to be honest with you, this is, this is just foreign. And for many of us, we have, um, we have languished by ourselves in, 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 in cloaks of loneliness. And we have thought that spiritually all you wanted to do with us and in us was to save us and take us away. And so we're asking that maybe tonight we might see the world with new eyes, with your eyes, and maybe look at our neighbor, look at our friend who claims to be a Christian and see them as someone for whom we must get along, someone with whom we must connect and share and grow and suffer and encourage. Lord Jesus, thank you that you've not let us alone. Thank you that you are a God who is a community in your own self-definition so that we ourselves must find that community as well. Would you do that perhaps even tonight? Begin to plant the seeds in our minds 
of seeing the world in a different way. For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.